Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Doctor in the House. You know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so I'm so happy today to be joined by my friend, Congressman Drew Ferguson from Georgia. We're going to be discussing legislation that actually passed in the last Congress and is actively being considered in this Congress, the Big Act, to help equip schools and communities with the tools that they need to ensure safety and health of each student. We certainly can't ignore the mental health ramifications of the coronavirus pandemic and how it challenged every American, including our students. So with students, excuse me, facing unconventional pressures during these times, it's more important than ever that schools have guidance on how to provide behavioral health resources for their students. We must do what we can to enable prevention, intervention, and early treatment of mental health conditions so these kids can get help before their conditions worsen or worse yet, become more serious. So again, I'm, I'm so pleased to welcome my, my friend, my colleague from Georgia, Drew Ferguson. Drew, you and I have worked on a, a piece of legislation called the Big Act for a couple of terms of Congress now. So how did this issue come to your attention and how did you decide it was important uh, enough to draft a bill? Well, first of all, thanks for the chance to be with you today. And and Doc, one of the things that, that I've seen over my years as, as a healthcare provider, um, even, that, even though I'm in a dental practice, you know, when you're in a general practice, you see so much of, and you build such deep relationships with patients, you see so much of what goes on, not only with them, but with family members. And we saw the devastating effects of untreated mental health and untreated, undiagnosed mental health. Um, illnesses, and it really profoundly affects families. And so I was on a, I was on a visit to Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia, and had a meeting with their team. And we were there talking about other things. And this topic came up and they shared with me what they were doing to help students get the resources that they needed prior to whatever problems they were having becoming a crisis that could not be corrected. And I became fascinated with it and became fascinated with how they developed the program. Um, and we, we'd, you know, there, there were other programs that were being talked about. I think Texas A&M had something that was you know, very innovative as well, very much along these lines. But what we saw here is that if you could, if you could look at data from students and see quick changes in data, okay, whether it was something in their grades whether it was um, something as simple as being the number of reprimands that they may have about, about their dorm room, um, or were they behind on financial, you know, financial payments? All of these things kind of add up and they create stress in the student's lives. And when that happens, then the student begins to spiral out of control because they don't have the resources that they need to address the underlying problem. And so, what the Big Act does is it recognizes that there are best practices around the country, both in the education system and in communities. And it says, hey, we want to teach one another how to recognize the problems and then assign a small team of people to help the person get the resources that they need before the problem spirals out of control. So I guess my, my apologies, I should have identified the Big Act stands for the Behavioral Intervention Guidelines, right? That's right. 
And I also, I apologize, I failed to mention that you're a, a member of the Doctors' Caucus. We're both members of the House GOP Doctors' Caucus, and most people don't realize that, in fact, we do get together on a weekly basis and we talk about things just such as this and how can we, how can we better help our constituents and how can we pass better legislation. You know, you referenced <clears throat> a college in Texas, I think it was actually Texas Tech, and I went up there several years ago trying to understand more about the, uh, the work they were doing in telehealth because, I mean, they're out there in the middle of nowhere in Lubbock, Texas, and it takes forever for anybody to get anywhere. And one of the things that came up, not just as a part of telehealth, but man, if we have a problem in one of our schools, it's not like uh, downtown Dallas where help is only 10 or 15 minutes away. <laughs> help maybe half an hour away or more. So the ability to identify, and this is what they told me, and it, you know, it makes a lot of sense when, when I first heard about it, that uh, you know, it's kind of like everybody in school knows who's got the problem, who, who, who is the problem. And to be able to help zero in on the kid who's struggling for whatever reason, and you're right, maybe a number of, of things that come into play or multiple factors that come into play, but then most importantly, rather not just identifying, but identifying and helping. And that's really why I like the, the focus of legislation that you were working on. I knew from my folks at Texas Tech that it was important to, uh, to provide these interventional guidelines, but, but being able to intervene, that's a, that's a big deal. It is a big deal. And, you know, there's a story from uh, Columbus State University uh, that really highlighted this. And it was a student that had been a, basically a, a top performing student. And then all of a sudden they were looking at their data and saw that the grades had slipped. Um, he was in he had gotten into two fights. OK, and, and never had any trouble whatsoever. And was beginning to get reports that, you know, there were there were other problems going on with the behavior. So what this allowed them, and one of the one of those was that they realized that the, the student was about to not be able to register for the next quarter because he was behind on his payments, tuition payments. And so what they did is they, they identified, they saw the change in behavior, they went and talked to the student, come to find out the father, his father had lost his job, didn't have the resources to help him finish. So he took, started taking jobs. He was working two jobs to earn money to pay the tuition. That was causing him to miss sleep, which was causing him to fall asleep in class, fall further behind, miss tests. The level of frustration was that he lashed out at his roommates, and it all was about about $500. So the university was able, through their scholarship fund, to find $500 to remedy the problem and help get the young man back on track. Think what would have happened if we had not, if they had not done that. And this this young this young man would have reached a, a point in a spiral that he couldn't have gotten out of. He never would have finished his education, and he could have wound up hurting himself or others. So not only did we help him finish, at, you know, the school uh, his schooling because he went on to graduate with honors, which is a good part of this story. But he also kept him in a good state of mental health, and he didn't harm himself. Those, those are big wins, and that's the kind of thing that we need to be looking at. I think that's what's so critical about what you've worked on. It's uh... Again, it's not just identification, it's it's the intervention part and literally empowering educators and administrators to be to be part of the of the team, if you will, that helps to intervene or intervene or intercede on a kid's behalf. And I think if you look at this too, 
everything that they that they saw with this young man as one example was data that they already had. Okay, but this isn't going out and looking for something new or spying on students or anything like that. This is looking at data that they already have, but just recognizing what that data means and being intentional about using it in a way that allows them to 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 create a healthy environment for their students. And so, you know, a lot of times in an, in an era right now, I think it's I think we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of folks in the country that go. The last thing we want is the government spying on us, or right. we don't want our business spying on us, and we don't want we don't want a school spying on us. I, I, I am firmly in that camp as well. But this data is out there, and if you can look at it in a way that is helpful, um, then then I think I think that's I think we can we can help a lot of people, and we can do them a good service without going in inviting in, in invading their privacy. And I think that's a, an important distinction because there are some guardrails in the big act that prevent it from being used in a nefarious way. Well, and that, that's so important because you are correct. Uh, people are concerned. Privacy right now is, is one of the buzzwords up here and everyone is, is concerned about that. But it's also so critical that there be the all the positive aspects of this, you, you not just identify, but you're actually making a difference. And uh, I think, as you so correctly pointed out, you're you're utilizing data that's readily available. This is not a this is not a secret. This is not uh, going into a black box somewhere. Yeah. This is data that's readily available. Yeah, and in this example, in the school, the school knows what the students' grades are. The school knows what the discipline reports are. The school knows what the financial data is around that student. These are things that are all normal functions of being a student and being an administrator in, in, in a in our institution of higher learning. But this can also go down to, can be used in the K through 12 setting. Um, so that, look, the same things exist there that exist in higher ed. And we're what we're seeing, as you pointed out in your opening, the effects of the pandemic are dramatic on, on, on our young people. And the mental health issues that they are facing, not only now, but will be facing as they matriculate through the system and go into the workforce or go into or go into college. These these big events that have happened in their lives um, all too often have led to uh, depression, isolation, um, you know, uncertainty about about their future. Uh, you know, they they don't know what to believe about a lot of this stuff. And so you can imagine if someone, if, if a young person is, is anxious about that, it can start a cascade of events that lead them to a crisis moment that will cause them to either harm themselves or, God forbid, harm others. And that's what, that, that's what we're trying to prevent here. So, yeah, we, we, we're all aware that life gets more complicated as you, uh, as you go along. And certainly the problems can compound and become also more complicated, sure. which is why the intervention is... Uh, such a critical piece of this and, and really what I think sets it apart from some of the other approaches that I had looked at along the way. Yeah. So this is designed to look at, you know, you know, the education setting. But I think I think we've got to be realistic in our conversations about um, things that happen in our communities as well. Um, all too often we see we hear of a tragic incident um, that, that that may have happened. Um, you know, recently, this you know the shooting in, in, in Buffalo, New York, is an example. Um, again, how do you how do you balance the privacy of individuals, but also know that there's public information out there about them that was seen, recognized, 
and yet it was never acted on. Okay. Those are the things that, that I think that we that we've got to be intentional at looking at and recognize that there's a balance there. You again, you don't want you you, you can't have the government invading your privacy. Um, you, you can't be you can't have them affected, you know, using your First Amendment rights against you, those kinds of things. But also, if people are volunteering information and they're putting the they're, they're putting the signals out there, you know, you know, again, ultimately, we want to prevent tragedy. And the thing that we ultimately don't we want to we want to prevent tragedy. We want to help our fellow Americans and we want to do it in a way that doesn't violate their constitutional rights. And I think if we're smart and thoughtful about that and recognize that protection of constitutional rights is paramount in this country, I think we can do that. Well, and the intentionality of what you've what you've laid out in the big act, I think, is a is a big part of that. And and quite honestly, too, you have to ask yourself and some of the information that you write, someone puts out there for the public to consume. Uh, uh, is, is, is it bravado or, or are they asking for help? And if they're asking for help, are we responding the correct way? And that's one of the things I, I know that keeps me up at night. Well, and, and, uh, and again, I think it's, again, if you look at something like the Big Act, it, it it's not legislation where it says that, hey, a congressman from Texas and one from Georgia are telling educators or law enforcement or healthcare professionals exactly what to do. It's simply saying, Put, congregate all of the best practices and then figure out a system that works for your environment. And, and that's ultimately, I think, a much better position to take because it allows local communities, local school systems, or an educational institution to develop their own model and it's not being dictated by the federal government. Which is the, the, not being prescriptive is, is so terribly important in a, in a situation that demands flexibility. You, you really cannot be prescriptive. I know when uh, when I talk to my uh, my folks out in at Texas Tech in Lubbock, and I'll, I'll get the numbers wrong because I don't have them in front of me. But the uh, when they presented their data to me, and you go to a school district, and they're talking K through twelve, you go to a school district, and yeah, there's a, a subset of people that everyone can identify. Hey, there's a problem of some sort here, and that number is well, large enough. But as you begin to winnow it down and winnow it down. You eventually come to a small subset of people that uh, really where a crisis may be imminent, but to some degree it's avoidable. I think the, the example they gave me was a kid with uh, undiagnosed dyslexia that had become an increasingly severe behavioral problem in, in one of the either middle schools or high schools. And by by using the data, as you said, that is that is generally available, they were able to, to winnow that down and, and provide some help. And look, there are going to be times when the you know no matter what uh, help is not going to be uh, not going to be available or the person won't accept it, and then at least you know here's a subset of people. Really, you've got to, uh, and it may even be an alternative education situation that they need to be in. Again, the bottom line is to get them in the right environment, get them the help that they need. Um, again, we, we're, we want our fellow Americans to succeed. And look, the the mental height, the mental health crisis that America is facing um, is growing and it's being driven by a lot of different things. You can point the finger at a lot of different root causes. And I think that, I think we've got to address those, but the damage has already been done. And so we're going to have to set ourselves up for some long-term intentional treatment and some long-term steps to deal with this. Um, you know, if, if, if we lose Americans to mental health, 
It's no different than losing them to, to COVID-19 or to cancer. It's a lost life. And, and the resources that we spend on this are going to be, you know, could be astronomical. So the sooner that we diagnose and prevent things, the better off we're going to be. And I, and, and I, like you and a lot, of other, a lot of other Americans, are very concerned about our capacity um, to, to deal with the mental health crisis. Not our desire, not the money, but we have, to, we have to recognize that we've got a big infrastructure problem, human infrastructure problem here, and making sure that we've got enough providers in the pipeline, enough, enough facilities, and really uh, the, make sure that our processes are efficient um, and get the best results. We got a long way to go on this and a short time to get there. So we, we, we've got to stay focused on this. Well, we do. And as a member of the budget committee, I'm always mindful of the congressional budget office, but look, we all learned a long time ago, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, uh, one of the arguments that I have with the congressional budget office is, Hey, don't always just charge us for the ounce of prevention. Give us credit for the pound of cure when we when when these things come up for a for a budgetary discussion. And I don't know how many times I've said it, but the cost of doing nothing can in fact be astronomical. It is true in every part of healthcare. Every part of healthcare. And one of the things too, and we worked a lot uh, a couple of Congresses ago on the what was called the Support Act. And this would dealt with the opiate crisis at the time. And indeed it was, and it was a public health emergency. The president correctly uh, d- determined and, and, and called a, a public health crisis. And we worked on it in Congress. We actually worked on legislation and in fact made a difference, began to actually for, I think calendar year 2018 or 2019, for the first time, those numbers came down. They ticked down a little bit. Now, of course, coronavirus intervened Um, But the other thing that we can't take our eye off of, it's no longer an opiate crisis, it's a fentanyl crisis. And fentanyl is ever so much more deadly than the the opiate crisis. The the drivers and the symptoms are very similar, but now we're dealing with another order of magnitude as a severity of the crisis. And it is terrifying. As a parent, it's terrifying. Um, I I can tell you firsthand that the parents, uh, including myself, worry about this every single day with their kids. Um, And there is, and it's being driven by the fact that number one, we do have a mental health crisis. We have predators that are in gangs that are selling drugs that are taking advantage of that. And this, the other piece of this is we have to recognize that we have a we have a southern border that is wide open that we're just literally thousands of pounds of this stuff are coming across the border every single day. And, and it is, and it is terrifying. And, you know, again, we can sit back and just let things happen and point fingers, or we can actually do things that are effective. We have to secure the border. We have to deal with, with gang activity. We have to be intentional about, about mental health care, and we have to be intentional about drug counseling this is dangerous. We had 100,000 people die of fentanyl last year. Okay. If we had 100,000 people die of everything else, of, of anything else, we would, we would mobilize as a nation, whether it was a foreign, it was a foreign country invading our country, uh, coming into the U.S. and killing our citizens, or whether it was a pandemic. We mobilize our resources, our intellect, and we solve the problem. And we should be taking that same approach now. It is one of those all hands on deck moments. Um, 107,000 deaths last calendar year, twice the number of people that were lost in the entirety of the Vietnam War were lost in one year due to the fentanyl uh, epidemic in this country. And uh, look, you and I are 
both healthcare providers. We we recognized a couple of Congresses back that maybe healthcare providers bore some of the responsibility. We needed to be careful about the prescriptions we wrote. The drug companies needed to be careful about the deliveries. But I, I, I got to tell you, uh, Congressman Ferguson, it's it's morphed into an entirely different topic now. With just as you said, the dif- difficulties of the southern border and the and the toxicity of this compound that is now flooding into our into our our, our underworld markets. Uh, I will tell you that a couple of Congresses ago, there was an effort to try to, to regulate or or stop the pill presses that uh, people are using. Unfortunately, that became a free speech issue. I don't quite understand how, but that may be one of the things that we need to revisit because you're right. It's the the, the parents' concern that a kid is going to be given what they think is a Percocet, uh, and in fact, it turns out to be a deadly dose of fentanyl, and there's there's no coming back from that. And and you see this. Um, it's another interesting piece of this is a conversation about the legalization of marijuana. Um, and you see so many kids now that are that are choosing to smoke marijuana, but they're getting it from somebody that they don't know the source or they claim that they know the source. And by the way, there are no ethical drug dealers on the on the planet. Um, they the pot is, is laced with fentanyl. And so they go and they smoke, you know, they may smoke one joint, think that it's not going to do anything. And you know what? The parents, their parents have to go to their funeral. It's a, it, it's a devastating event for the family. And you know, one of the one of the aspects of the big act, I I think it uh, drawn to its logical conclusion will help identify people who might be at risk for this type of behavior, drug seeking behavior, associating with with people who might lead to those types of decisions. So it's it's bringing it back to the big act is critically important. We've got a we've as you say we've got a clear and present danger. Uh, at our at our border, on, in our midst, it is a chemical attack on the young people in this country, and we, we literally have to have all hands on deck to try to solve the problem. And yeah, we we we've got to do everything we can to protect uh, protect Americans from harm. That's the, the the first and primary responsibility of the federal government. And a chemical attack on our children, as you have so aptly called it, um, is something we shouldn't be defending against. And, and, and of course, the mental health crisis feeds right into that. Well, um, I hope people listening to this podcast uh, get the notion that both Georgia and Texas, two states that might seem uh, it might seem incongruous that uh, Texas and Georgia would be the leaders on this, but we're serious about the problem. And uh, so grateful to you for um, putting the big act together and, and getting it out there. Again, I think we passed it in the last Congress, but it didn't, it didn't get through the Senate. So we'll have another opportunity this Congress. So that's, uh, that's a great thing about serving in the, uh, in the people's house. There's always an opportunity to continue to do good, but I really want to thank you for being with me today and, and thank you for, for putting forward the legislation. Well, thank you for the chance to be with you. And, you know, you and I both know that uh, we can get things done in the house. And I think, um, you know, I think this is a bipartisan issue. We've got good bipartisan support on this bill. Um, As you pointed out last time, it didn't make it through the Senate. As a a Georgian, I used to say all the time that I wanted two Bulldogs, two Braves, and two Falcons to be my pallbearers at my funeral so they could let me down one last time. (laughs) When you get to to Congress, you learn you just need six senators because they'll do it every time. So hopefully they'll, they'll get on board with this and get it across the finish line. Well, thanks again, Drew. Thanks for joining me today. And uh, 
This concludes another doc, uh, another episode of Doctor in the House. Uh, visit the other podcasts that are available on the website, and uh, we'll cue the dramatic music and uh, see you soon. <laughs>